Great, please do take a seat. I think that's a good prayer, as James said, uh, as we start. So please do open up your Bibles again in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, page 973. Page 973. So I wonder, how do you, how do you feel about authority? How do you feel about authority? I think as a culture and a generation, we've got a bit of a love love-hate relationship with authority because we're very individualistic as a culture and so I think we often have a natural aversion, a kind of kickback uh, response against any kind of authority. Who are you? Who are you to tell me how to live my life? We also, don't we, live in an unprecedented age of, of great openness and scrutiny of our leaders through media, through social media and we see, don't we, that our leaders are, are deeply flawed deeply flawed, and that leads, I think, to a distrust of authority. And yet, at the same time, we can't help but just be drawn to good authority and leadership. When you, when you see really good authority, really good leadership, it's just compelling. It's magnetic. It's, it's something that is just very attractive to us. And, and that is the experience of the early disciples in, in Matthew's gospel that we encounter. The early stories are all about following Jesus, being captivated, if you like, by his, his authority. So Jesus says, you know, back earlier in the gospel to the hardened fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, John, come follow me. What do they do? They drop their nets and they immediately follow him. We could say, couldn't we, that the disciples are the, the kind of early adopters of the Christian faith, the sort of people who queue overnight outside the Apple store for the latest piece of technology, you know, willing to remortgage their home for the latest iPhone. They just want to catch the crest of a wave, you know, be the first, be the pioneers. They're the kind of early adopters of the Christian faith. And yet, and yet Matthew knows, doesn't he, that most of us are just not wired to jump on the bandwagon in that way just as soon as it comes rolling by. So he persuades us. He persuades us slowly, surely, with the authority of Jesus. That is the big theme of chapter 8. Jesus has authority over the disordered creation, authority over disease, authority over death. And running all the way through is the command, follow me, follow me. And as we reach the the end of chapter 8, the focus sharpens. It's almost as if Matthew kind of tightens the lens and the focus, and we start to see what it is that Jesus will come to use this authority for. And the answer is perhaps surprising, but it makes, I think, the call to follow Jesus all the more compelling. Two points uh, this morning as we look at this passage. Jesus has authority, we see, over evil, and Jesus has authority to forgive sins. So what about Jesus has authority over evil? Notice the change of scene at the uh, beginning of this section. Jesus has now crossed uh, to the other side of the lake. He's left the nice, safe territory uh, where the Jewish people live and entered the kind of darky, dark, scary, no-go uh, zone where Gentiles and unclean uh, farm animals like pigs uh, are roaming. There's no police patrols here. Councils would have long since stopped collecting the bins. And sure enough, as soon as Jesus arrives, two demon-possessed men uh, come out from the tombs to meet him. We see these are men beyond 
uh, human aid. You can picture their kind of wild-eyed, sort of dribbling, uncontainable uh, beings. They're so violent that no one could pass that way. Kids, stay away, would have been the parental message. Just think about it. Just imagine the panic on the disciples' faces. They just got over the trauma of the storm, and now they're faced with face to face with supernatural evil. And these men are two extreme examples of Satan's power. Do you see the symbolism here? Living in tombs, isolated, unclean, cut off from the land of the living. I don't know about you, perhaps we sometimes recoil when we hear about, about demons. We kind of think, well, this stuff is best left to, to Game of Thrones or some other fantasy uh, world. Well, the Bible's clear that just as God is real, so too evil is real, devil is real, angels are real. We may not today, in our part of the world, see many manifestations of this kind. But it's not surprising, is it, that we'd see a spike in this kind of activity when God comes to earth to achieve his purposes. It's a bit like kind of prodding a wasp's nest, and out they all come flying. But I think the real surprise here is that the demons know immediately who Jesus is, don't they? Do you see that? What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time, verse 29. Demons, they are more clued up than the disciples in many ways. They know that Jesus is the Son of God. And they know, they know, don't they? The day is coming when Jesus will destroy all evil. What is their fear? Their fear seems to be that Jesus has arrived on the field before the whistle has gone to kick off play. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? So they beg, don't they? They beg Jesus, verse 31. Look, there's a large herd of pigs over there, clearly not vegetarians. Instead of destroying us, can't you just drive out, drive us out into these men, from these men, into these pigs? So Jesus says, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Here is one supreme power, one absolute authority, one who can do what no other man can do. One who can control evil without even breaking sweat. Just a word. Jesus Christ. Evil evil is real, isn't it? We know that. Evil is real from from 9-11 to hashtag me too. Power of drugs, the lie of self-fulfillment. In his wake, Satan brings isolation, abuse of power, Selfish greed, disintegration of social networks. At times, it can just seem overwhelming. Wherever we look, that is happening. But here in this incident, Jesus demonstrates he has absolute authority over Satan. If we're God's people, that is 
reassuring. The world is not everything it should be. We know, many of us know the pain of evil, but we need not fear evil in this world. Here Jesus demonstrates his power and authority over evil. Later on the cross, he would disarm evil. One day, he will return to destroy it completely. Yeah, don't you think the real thrust of this passage is verse 34? Look at verse 34. Then they saw the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Do you see the parallel that's, that's going on here? So back in verse 28, the men came out from the tombs to meet Jesus and they beg him, don't they? Here the people come out to Jesus and beg him to leave their region. Words are the same here. Matthew is drawing a parallel between the demons and the townspeople. He's saying, look, we can tell both in the end are on the same side because they both respond to Jesus in the same way. They both reject Jesus. You know, Jesus just liberated them from this this evil that has dominated this area, yet they respond by saying, leave. How do you respond to the authority of Jesus? Jesus does demand, doesn't he, a decision. Many of us will be conscious of our own, own vulnerability uh, to evil, the way in which ourselves, our desires, that they just leave us feeling inadequate, unclean, isolated, horizontally separated from others, vertically separated from God, always wanting to show the better side of me, but just somehow never being able to. How can we respond? Well, if that is us, the beginning of chapter 9 is great news. Great news, because we see that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. What will Jesus use his authority for? Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. You can sort of picture the scene, can't you? The complete stunned silence in the room. The sort of shuffling of feet, the slightly awkward cough. I like to imagine kind of Peter, a bit like a civil servant, kind of comes up to Jesus, whispers in his ear, you know, Jesus, I know it's been a long day, lots been going on, you're tired, but this man is paralysed, he needs healing. But Jesus doesn't do losing the plot, does he? Jesus is making a a powerful statement here about, about the man's deepest need. He looks at the man. There in front of him, probably with his withered limbs, perhaps with fatigue, etched on his face from years of paralysis. And he sees past all that. And he sees into the man's heart. And he sees in this man's heart the same problem of every man and every woman who has ever lived and would ever live. He sees sin. 
Yeah, Jesus knows that if he can only do one thing, then the best thing that he can do is to forgive this man's sins. Because Jesus knows the sin in this man's heart is the cause in the end of all of the problems in the world. That is the cause. Perhaps you think that is an outrageous statement to make. But the Bible is unembarrassed to say it. Ever since Genesis 3, when, as we heard earlier, we said, shove off God. Adam and Eve said, shove off God. Sin has just spilled out through human history. That is why, isn't it, the world is not all as it should be because of the sin that cuts us off from God, separates us from each other. Jesus knows, doesn't he, that one day, if one day at that appointed time, he is to come back to bring in that perfect new creation, as he will do, then he has to deal with sin first and foremost, to clear up the mess of the world. He's got to clear up the people who make the mess. That is you, that is me, that is all of us. Jesus knows that. Jesus is not saying, I'm not concerned about the man's physical condition. He heals the guy, doesn't he? But he's concerned supremely above all with his eternal suffering. Son, your sins are forgiven. Should heighten our compassion for all those who suffer eternally, who don't know Jesus Christ. But you see that Jesus is not really making a point here about people. Jesus actually is making a point about himself. At least that is how the teachers of the law understood it as they heard Jesus. Look at verse 3. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Teachers of the law get in a major lather, don't they, about what Jesus has, has said here. And that is because they get, they understand the full implication of what Jesus is saying. Just imagine, I'd love to do this, imagine I walk out mid-service, I break into Lewis's very nice shiny car, parked in the car park. Drive off, crash it, and then I wander into the evening service. Richard sees me. Richard says, Alex, don't worry about Lewis's car. He's always tricky. I forgive you. You know, Lewis, Lewis would, go, would rightly go apoplectic <laughs> at that for a change. It's his car. It's for Lewis to forgive me. Only the offended party has the right to forgive the wrong that has been done. Teachers of the Lord know that. They get that. More than that, they understand that the person who's ultimately offended by sin is God. That's how it works every time with sin. We offend God. When you watch that video on the internet that you know you should not watch, you sin against the person you're watching. But you also sin against the God who says... We should not commit adultery in our hearts. When you say cutting and destructive things about a person behind their back, you sin against that person. But you also sin against the God who says no corrupting talk should come out 
of your mouth. Every time we sin against God, it is only God who's got the right to forgive us. Jesus is claiming to be the one who can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. So Jesus is claiming to be God. That is outrageous. But I love this. Jesus makes no attempt, does he, to backtrack. Do you see that? Instead, he goes on to try and prove the truth of what he's just said. Look at verse 4. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier? To, To say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. How would you answer that question? Which which is easier to say, do you think? On the face of it, the easier thing to say is your sins are forgiven. Because no one can prove either way whether that statement is effective. But But say get up and walk, well, everyone can immediately see whether what you've said is true. Jesus is saying here, he's saying, let me prove to you that my statement about forgiveness of sins is true by, apparently do, by doing the apparently harder thing. Because I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. We've got to, we've got to agree, haven't we? This healing is a staggering demonstration of the authority of Jesus. Get up, take your mat, and go home with a word. Immediately, man is healed. There is no physio, no rehab. Years of wasting away of limbs is no problem. Total and utter authority. What is Jesus going to do with this authority? What at heart is Jesus all about? Jesus has come to forgive sins. Forgiveness of sins is what Jesus is all about. And we need to know that. We need to know that because that, in the end, is what will make us follow Jesus. That is what will make us jump on the wave, the crest of the wave, like those early disciples, and to follow Jesus, to go with him on that wave all the way to the new creation. As we finish, just reflect on this. This is a supreme authority. As the Son of Man, Jesus has authority over the whole cosmos. There is no one, no one like him. So his is the only verdict, the only verdict that counts on your life. We spend, don't we, we spend so much time scrabbling around, uh, just trying to get the affection and the allegiance of other people, people who've got authority over us to prove ourselves time and again. And yet we live, don't we, in a culture that just loves to hold stuff against us. Get it wrong at work, your reputation is tarnished. Get it wrong socially, well, you might be out. Get it wrong as a parent, and well, you damage your children. But if Jesus says your sins are forgiven, in the end, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because the verdict of Jesus is the only verdict that counts. If he says your sins are forgiven, 
Your sins are forgiven. Maybe you've done something in your past against someone and they bear a grudge against you. They won't speak to you anymore. You carry that weight with you. Because Jesus is a supreme authority, it doesn't matter, does it, what another person thinks about you. Because in the end, the verdict of Jesus is the only one that counts. Jesus says your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. With humility, with gratitude, we need to accept that. This is also a trustworthy authority, isn't it? What draws us to people in authority? It is, in the end, integrity. When we see a goodness in people, a goodness in how they lead, how they use their authority, that is what is compelling. If a prime minister suspends parliament, apparently to avoid scrutiny, it stinks, doesn't it? That is an abuse of authority. Do you ever wonder whether Jesus could abuse his authority? Is he worthy of our trust? How do we know that he won't abuse that trust, won't lead us up the garden path to a place we don't want to go, a place that isn't good for us? What if Jesus suddenly moves some goalposts and we're left, you know, stranded, high and dry? Put bluntly, how do we know that giving Jesus our vote is worth it? Because Matthew's gospel is full of the goodness of Jesus Christ. Every time you see Jesus come into contact with people, what is his first thought? His first thought is always, what is best for this person? Episode after episode, Jesus does good to people. Because that is all that Jesus ever did and ever does. Good to people. Just think about it. Jesus has supreme authority. He could have done whatever he wanted. What did he choose to do with it? He chose to come down, to die on a cross, for the sake of humanity, for the sake of you and for me. You can judge for yourself, whether he's worthy of your trust. And finally, this is, isn't it, a God-glorifying authority. Isn't the response of the people great? Verse 8. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to a man. What a contrast to those people at the end of chapter 8. They cannot believe here what they've seen. There's no promise, is there, that giving our lives to Jesus will be a breeze. There will always be competing authorities, people, institution, worldviews saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. For a while, they might satisfy. From time to time, they might just iron out the creases of life. At times, they might seem convincing. But in the end, there's one thing they cannot do. They will never be able to do. They cannot forgive you your sins. Only one person can do that, the Lord Jesus. Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Will we follow him? Will we follow him? Let's pray.
Lord God, we praise you for uh, the incredibly, amazingly awesome authority of Jesus that we've seen in chapter 8. We praise you we have nothing to fear in this life because of Jesus. He has demonstrated complete authority over evil. And Lord, we praise you most of all for this amazing encounter uh, with this man. Son, your sins are forgiven. Lord, we pray that we would understand that, know that deep in our hearts, have the humility and the gratitude to accept that. And Lord God, it would give us a new perspective to live a life that is one of following you with more and more of our hearts day by day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.